Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. Thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is going to open your mind. He's Tim Leak, and he is the Chief Marketing and Innovation Officer at RPA Advertising. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Rob. It's awesome to be here. And now, uh, you see your job as, let me let me know if I'm getting this right. You see your job as <laughs> being what your clients need before they know what they need. Well, or, or, or more, more specifically, helping the agency become what our clients need us to be before they know that's what they need us to be. And that's a really, it's a really high level way of explaining it because, of course, that I'm, I have lots of specific stuff that I need to do as well. But it's a good way of, of figuring out what actually um, I'm driven towards and what motivates me. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's a, an interesting way to, uh, you know, talk about what this, uh, you know, innovation officer. So it's always a tricky title. I think it's a neat title, but it's a tricky one to uh, uh, to unpack. Uh, yeah, it's it's not an easy thing to explain. And I think a lot of people look at innovation meaning different things, right? It's some people look at that, at that as a very highly technical um Role right. It's I'm, I'm the person who's going to help figure out what we do with VR for our clients and or start or start a tech lab, and and for me it's it's very much about how do we make sure we're going to be successful in the future, right? We we in a client driven organization have a lot of people who are, are thinking really hard about what's best for the clients and how to help them grow, and there aren't a lot of people in internally who think about our business and and what do we need to disrupt and what do we need to change in order to grow and be successful. Very cool. Now, because we're on the Disruptor Series podcast, you know, we've got, uh, you know, T-shirts and tote bags to live up to. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about your disruption that we're going to discuss. And your disruption is ugly. And uh, I tried. Uh, you know, just 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 a quick background for folks. Uh, I was in the Palais at Cannes, the uh, Cannes Lions Festival, just a couple weeks ago. And and for those of you who haven't been there, there's a very interesting dynamic that happens in the in the main area of Cannes. Let me just set it up briefly, and, and it'll help to explain uh, why Tim is gonna gonna blow your minds here in one second. But it's very interesting because when you enter the Palais, it's basically like being at the Las Vegas airport. And you are just assaulted by advertising. And this is not the award-winning advertising. <laughs> What's interesting is that when you then go down the stairs, then everything is very organized. It's set up like an art gallery. You know, everything looks really kind of amazing and beautiful. Oh, you know, wonderful, you know, pieces of, you know, the print and poster and, you know, places to, to see everything, digital and all that stuff, all organized. But when you enter the Palais, it is fucking chaotic. And what was amazing is that of all these different posters that are there and they're all trying to vie for your attention to go to these different presentations. And by the way, all this work is done by all the agencies that we respect and love. <laughs> and they're all trying to get you to go to their presentations. There's one poster that catches my eye, you know, whatever it was, three weeks ago. And it's a close-up of Tim's face and it says, Ugly Cells. And this was kind of earth-shattering to me. <laughs> And uh, it turns out that uh, that here's Tim Leak, who is going to give a presentation on the power of ugly. And that is the whole reason why we're talking today. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because it does kind of cut through at the moment. And, and I think in a good way. And I I don't think I can state enough how how heartwarming it is to hear you say that that, that broke through and it resonated and, and, and that I'm going to blow people's minds because a mere week or two beforehand, I started getting really nervous about the fact that I was going to go to the Cannes Lions, you know, which is this celebration of creativity and craftsmanship and, and 
all things beautiful and basically tell a lot of really, really smart people uh, that maybe we should be opening our minds to stuff that is deliberately ugly. Yeah, and, and, and I think, um, uh, and, and this, this is what we're going to talk about, because this is a disruption. Ugly as the disruption of a business that, you know, kind of heretofore was about the, the manufacturing of aspiration and beauty. And it's changed, right? Like, and you know, so so where where I started noticing it, if I'm being perfectly honest, is with my kids, and I think kids are always a great way to expose yourself to trends that that you you otherwise didn't know. And the and the crazy thing about the connected digital world that we live in today is that it's so easy to ignore stuff you're not interested in and to say, well, that's that's not for me, or literally to not even know it exists. And there's all these different niches and subgenres and stuff that's out there. Uh, but then there's also kind of this hidden, you know, new mainstream that's out there, uh, particularly if you look at YouTube and you look at what creators are doing on YouTube or, or, or places like TikTok or, or these different platforms where, where people are creating all this content. And it is it, it feels like literally the only thing my kids are interested in watching is this stuff. And so I thought that was interesting because they are eschewing scripted television, anything that looks highly polished and, and well-produced. They, they aren't interested in. And then when they play video games, they love these video games that are, are deliberately crappy looking, right? Like, like Roblox or Minecraft are deliberately pixelated. And I just found that fascinating. And so that's what got me to start looking at, so what, what is this like in a more mainstream way? What else are people into and, and, and all that? And it, then I kind of went down this rabbit hole of of ugliness. Well, yeah. And uh, your presentation uh, really challenged um, kind of everything. I think not just I believe, I think the audience too was kind of like, wait a minute, you know, this stuff may have been happening, but as you say, it's mainstream. I think everybody thought, no, no, this is just happening, you know, like over there on the web. Well, guess what? Where where are we? We're all on the web. Everything is the web. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. Well, and, and it was a challenge for myself, too. I mean, I set that whole presentation up basically as, as a journey, right? This is my, well, this can't be true, right? That's what my kids want. And actually, it's funny, even if you'd asked me two months ago in my evolution of putting this together, I would have said, and, and I think I was quoted somewhere saying this, it's like, well, I don't like it, right? It's just, but we have to understand what people are actually reacting to and, and explore it. And it's funny because now that I've immersed myself in it, I actually find that I like it more than I, certainly more than I did two months ago. Like I see the brilliance in it. I see the beauty and the ugly. Well, well, yeah. And, and I think just, you know, in, in a few moments, I do want to get to uh, some of the benefits of ugly because I think you covered that, which is kind of interesting. One of the things just to kind of, I don't know, this is my observation after, you know, experiencing, um, you know, this, this ugly presentation. And, I, and, I, and the presentation is actually beautiful as you deliver it, but, but the, the subject <laughs> is ugly. But I, tell me if this is fair. This is kind of how I framed it up in my head. There was kind of like this age of aspiration, mm -hmm. you know, mad men forward is sort of this age of aspiration. And then quite recently, we had this moment where it's the age of real beauty. Mm -hmm. You know, Dove... Uh, ushers in this kind of age of realness. And if you think about some of the iconic work that Dove did, it's, it's not that these uh, these models are ugly by any stretch of the imagination no, at all. Real, these are yeah. actually really beautiful, you know, people. Uh, they're just, we're just not used to seeing real people. Right. But this is a third chapter for me, or a third wave, which was the age of ugly, where it wasn't the beauty of the real. No, no, it was, hey, this is going to be, poorly designed 
And a lot of times it's poorly designed on purpose. It is. And I, and I think it's it's a reaction, right? And everything's also on a spectrum. Like I chose the word ugly, obviously, because it's provocative and because it, it takes it to an extreme that you can you can relate to. So we, if you can if you can accept it at its ugliest, you can accept it at, at all of its shades of gray in between. And I think it's coming from the same place as real, right? And genuine. And, and it's, it's a reaction to the over-perfection that... Our industry puts on things that social media puts on things that television and movies and and all, as you say, there's this been, it was aspirational and we always looked at it as aspirational. But and maybe because there's so much of it today, and it's not just shining up on a movie screen; it's everywhere. I think what's happened is people are having this reaction to it of saying that's unattainable. You're you're setting up expectations for me and for my life and for the way I look and for my confidence that's just not true. And going the opposite way feels real, feels cooler. That actually feels more aspirational. And they're putting their own stamp on it. And it's not like this hasn't happened before, right? I, I make a comment in the presentation about how it reminds me of punk music. Oh, yeah, very much so. Right? And and even, even if you look at the art style of the Sex Pistols album cover, it looks like the way ugly design looks like on the web today. And there's they're, they're coming from a similar place. It's, it's a reaction. And then the funny thing that I noticed as I started digging into this is then you have what's kind of like an echo chamber of it is ugly and, and that's what people like. And so then therefore ugly becomes what they want it to look like because they believe that's how it's quote unquote supposed to look. And so now they're not reacting to it anymore. They're just copying stuff that they like. Like my mm-hmm. kids don't play 8-bit looking video games because it's a reaction to the overperfection of video games. That might have been what spawned Minecraft and Roblox and, and, and some of that, but they just like it because it's like the games that they like to play. So, yeah. So part of your, you know, why is this happening? Part of it, as you're saying, is it's a reaction to overperfection. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, you know, as you said, that two things came to my mind. One was kind of the Kardashian nation, you know, the Kardashian-ness of the world, their perfection. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a reaction to that. And it's also a little bit of a, of, a, of a reaction, you know, when you look at the world of video games, you know, to the the call of duty is of the world. You know, that this was, you know, a lot of that stuff is too perfect. It, it is. And, and the, the, so the interesting thing is uh, I had, had, had talked to some people in doing my research for this, and, and a lot of them, you know, they actually were one one in particular redefined ugly, saying, "Well, it's not really the ugly." You know, I, I understand as from a designer, you could point to this and say that that looks ugly, except it's it's the other stuff, the the really slick stuff that in their mind that's ugly because it's making people feel bad about themselves. You know, and I thought that was a fascinating way of flipping <laughs> flipping my own my own thesis on its head. Well, yeah, I want I want to go in a little deeper on this. So you had this very profound. Uh, conversation with a potential client who became your client. Mm-hmm. So the TikTok client comes to the agency. So so maybe talk about that story a, a little bit because I love this notion that um, it was this idea that the ads felt too much like ads. Yeah. So the um, and and I love I love the, the the timeline of all this. By the way, you know when you when you pitch a, a talk to Can, that happened last November that that we put it together and. Um, hmm. You know, there's a, there's a whole story to that as well, but but they 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 thought, oh, that's really provocative, that's really interesting, and at that point, it was just bubbling up for me, and and as I said, you know, if I look at my job is to figure out what we need to be before our clients need to be it or need us to be that, I started thinking about how 
what this looks like and, and exploring it. And of course, then a few months later, we have this opportunity to pitch TikTok. And and for, you know, there may be still plenty of listeners out there that aren't that familiar with what TikTok is. And it's a, it's, it's not really a social network. They don't look at themselves that way. It's more of a content platform that's kind of a, like Vine and Instagram combined, but it's mm. it's short form entertainment that that's designed to be enjoyable and, and to put a smile on your face. And, and it's fun and it's interesting, but it's also... It's raw and it's real and it's scrappy. And sometimes people do produce stuff, but most people don't. They're, they've literally made it on their phone. And and so uh, Stefan, who is the, the global marketing director for TikTok, you know, it said, you, you know, coming in, he, he likes stuff to feel raw and real and, and authentic and, and all that sort of stuff. And we, we had a what are those great first meetings? You know, it's that ChemCheck meeting, right? Where we're not we're not sharing thoughts about them yet. We're just talking about mm. ourselves and what we do. And we have some early strategic thoughts. And, and it's like, you know, his response basically was, you know, I love I love this thinking. You guys seem to really get what we're all about. But when I look at your work, you know, your ads look too much like ads. And, you know, that, that of course, stuns a lot of us because... That's what we make, right? Is ads. So is that surprising? Suddenly, suddenly doing the thing that was what you were supposed to do and where you were getting credit and praise and winning more clients from that, all of a sudden that starts to get tilted on its head. And, you know, but we've been we've been developing and, and sort of challenging ourselves uh, to th- how can we work differently? How can we, you know, we're always trying to think, as I'm sure you are as well. How do you work faster? How can we be more authentic? How do we do stuff that's going to resonate with people? And so we've been exploring this. And it's still not an easy thing, right? A lot of us got into this industry because we like craftsmanship and we like creating beautiful things. And, you know, by the way, the the irony was not lost that it was about a few, like three days after you reached out to invite me to do this that I saw the article about how uh, the New York office for, for TBWHI Day is winning because of all your design. <laughs> right? So, so the, you know, the, 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 the dichotomy there is, is a fascinating one, right? We, we've, we've taken a lot of pride in this, but we have to put a different hat on. And, uh, and, and, and kudos to our teams for, for, for embracing that and taking that on and then throughout the rest of the pitch – bringing it and um and being what our clients needed us to be and and that's it's you know that was a really fun win and and a great proof point obviously for the presentation um to be able to talk about hey here's this thing we saw it coming and yeah it is it's here and i i I do think i don't think it'll be around forever i i really you know you never know it is a reaction and reactions then get reacted to the pendulum could easily swing it a different way as well but I definitely see us as an industry starting to play in this more often because another thing we have to deal with, of course, is that we have more content to make. It doesn't require, it doesn't justify the level of production budget that it used to. So how do you do it and still make it good? Because if you try to do something that should be well-produced, not that good, like you make it halfway, that's not very good. It actually, I think it's going to feel more authentic to just strip it way back and 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 keep it ugly. There there are so many avenues that I that I could take this conversation in. Again, I think <laughs> I think this is the honestly not, not just because you know this is you know you know our podcast, but I I really think that you have hit on a major crossroads of our business and and a couple of things that you were saying in the presentation that I think were super powerful that I think you know we should really pay attention to is first is that this was a uh, ugly you know as a movement is a different 
kind of craftsmanship. Mm. It's a challenge to traditional craftsmanship. And I use the word craftsmanship and and craft because I think we have, uh, you know, just this, uh, I don't know, a very conventional view of craft as being somehow about uh, beauty and perfection. And I think what you hit on is that, well, there's craft in a lot of this stuff too. So maybe you can talk about this concept that you framed up as um, art creating versus art directing. Yeah. Art creation versus art direction. I thought this was really profound. Oh, thanks. I um I actually do think I think this is, you know, more more than literally ugly. I actually think this is the bigger the bigger thing that's going to impact our industry and that I don't think will go back. I think this is going to be something we'll see over the next 5 to 10 years for sure radically impact our industry. And so, so if you think back, uh, think back to the mid '90s, which is when I started at Shiat Day, um, and uh, as, a, as a previous pirate myself, as, as you coined it, you're you're a recovering pirate, <laughs> a recovering pirate. We we had um, we had art directors, and we we had art directors and creative directors at Shiat Day at that time in the mid '90s, uh, who there's a switch going over to uh, to doing layouts, art directors doing layouts on computer. And it, which sounds so quaint now, right, that there was a time before they could do that. But they were used to directing people in the studio and whether they're paste-up artists or however they did that. I don't know. I came out of college knowing how to use a computer. Mm-hmm. So I always did things on the computer. But a lot of people didn't. They didn't embrace it that way. They thought, well, that, that's, not, that's not what I do. I'm an idea guy. I, direct, I, I art direct other people. But the, the problem is, is when you rely on, on art directing other people, you're adding bodies to what it takes to be able to do stuff. Mm. Compare that to the creators that we have out there that are, are, are creating content for YouTube or that are creating content for TikTok or whatever, wherever they're doing it. These are people who, you know, sometimes they're, I was going to say coming out of college, sometimes they're still in high school or in college and, and they're creating stuff. They're shooting it. They're editing it. They're doing the sound. They're putting all of it together themselves. They're creating it. And they're using, you know, consumer-grade electronics. Well, you know, the sort of stuff that you have on your phone, literally, that you have on your computer to do it rather than getting a producer involved, rather than, than, than having eight different people be involved. And one of the things, uh, uh, my friend Matt, uh, who, who runs a company called Donut Media, they create a lot of content, you know, uh, basically car enthusiast content for YouTube. And one of the things he said that I thought was that was a really insightful way of looking at this look is it feels best when it feels as if a single person made it. Hmm. And that's probably because in most cases a single person made it. So then when we have to go do content, social media content, you know, the amount of times we need to do social media content, we want to put this video together and the video is going to be put on social media, maybe have a little bit of paid money behind it or whatever, but compared to a TV spot, it doesn't deserve the amount of production budget that we're used to putting on stuff. But we still put so many people, we have layers of producers and editors and post and everything that you you build on this so that something, instead of being done by one person, is done by 15. Well, clients don't want to pay for that. It slows us down. It's all the, all the, all the things that <laughs> clients take issue with agencies today we're stepping into our own trap when we do that. If we can get people who just know how to use software and the same way that art directors back in the 90s had to start getting used to doing layouts on the computer, all the time we do layouts today and we just deliver it basically from the art director to finished. It's just done. Can we start doing that with video? Can you start doing that with sound, with with, with even, you know, After Effects and stuff like that? And now there's going to be a level where you need 
you need real support, right? There, it's This isn't true for everything. But I think it can be true for certain things if we reorient ourselves around what's possible and what that definition of good is. As you alluded to, you know, that definition of craftsmanship is change. It's not about the lighting and the polish, but casting is still super important. Performance is still super important. The script is still super important. Like if you don't have those elements, it's not going to be engaging and interesting. But how you shoot it, that part doesn't matter as much. I'm right there with you. And and there's uh, there was a part of me at the end of your presentation where I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is actually kind of a golden age of writers. (laughs) Because like you say, uh, ugly can only work if you have a great story, if you have a great character, you know, great performances, great casting. I mean, the elements of story are there, yet we're in this kind of like weird, democratized media. Right. You know, uh, and, and, and when I say democratized media, I mean, how many people does it take to make a meme? Yeah. You know, when you think about the form, whether it's memes or GIFs or rage comics, you know, it's... <laughs> You know, how many people do you need to make the actual media? I mean, in general, it's one, right? For a lot of those things, it's somebody who decides to do it and they put it out there. And it really, it is that democratization in terms of what becomes popular. And I think as advertising folk, we don't really like that. We're used to being able to buy our way into people's attention. And it's not easy for us to compete on a level playing field with everybody else. Not not because we're not good at it, but because there's so much of it. They outnumber mm-hmm. us. It, it's crazy. If you, if you open up the TikTok app and start just scrolling through that feed, you see so much funny, clever, brilliant stuff in two minutes than I, I see coming out of advertising oh, yeah. in a year. I think two, two, two minutes on TikTok has way more creativity than two minutes of commercial airtime on television. Yeah, and that's that's a challenge for us. So, so how do we then create content? So create content that can compete. How do we create content that is not going to get skipped, not going to get ignored? That's all. That's always our challenge. We've got different levels of things to do, um, but you know, it's it is interesting because we are training people to skip our ads by making it look like an advertisement, mm-hmm. and and it's that that funny little thing. And it's so hard for us to get past the muscle memory of that, right? It's like, yeah, but it's supposed to look good. And and I, I believe that's our, our big challenge. I mean, that's how I set up the presentation, too, is like, we all believe it's supposed to, but where does that come from, that, that belief? Yeah. It just comes from having done it that way forever. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I want you to talk a little bit about one of the real challenges that we all face in our business, both uh, on the agency side, client side, is... How do we reconcile this new world where you've got clients demanding uh, adherence to style guides and matching luggage? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the metaphor of matching luggage. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, I talked a lot about this. We're exploring a concept at RPA that, that, that we call situational marketing. And I'll be honest, we're just tipping our toes in the water of it. And it sprung out of a study that we did about Generation Z and, and, and how – they they present just completely different personas depending on the situation. And we always look at building a relationship with with customers as as a relationship. It's not that different from a relationship that regular people have. And if regular people today are building relationships where they're one thing over here and another thing over here, why maybe as brands we 
should start opening ourselves to that as well. And and then as you start looking around, you realize that that I, I think especially the smarter brands are starting to do that already. And Twitter is arguably one of the best places to look for that, that you can see a brand's voice and the way that they present themselves on Twitter when they're doing it best feels authentic to Twitter more than it feels authentic to the brand. Mm. And I don't know if that came across as a backhanded compliment as it came out of my mouth. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I actually mean it as I think it's a smart way to do it. If it's authentic to Twitter, people are going to be into it. And, you know, the the, the everybody talks about Wendy's all the time, for instance. Moonpie has a great Twitter feed. Um, I think Denny's does a great job. All, and in, in, in all cases, what they do on Twitter does not resemble what the rest of their marketing looks like. They've eschewed matching luggage. And I think a big part of the, I didn't do an ugly manifesto, but if I were to write one, <laughs> a big part of it would be it's, it's about throwing out the style guide. We do have this odd blind devotion to the style guide that we've put together and make sure that your logo isn't within three millimeters on either side of the border or anything else that's touching it. And don't ever use this color against that color. And it really is about throwing that out and being true to the place that you're in. And if you're authentic to the audience and if you're authentic to the platform where the audience is experiencing you, I think that's going to be a lot more resonant than than if we try to be true to the brand and we look then like a TV ad that was placed in a different medium. By the way, I think this disruption of the style guide is going to be very controversial <laughs> because, uh, no, I, and, and I think that you've, I think you've got a very good case for it. I think when you talk about kind of, um, you know, Denny's, you know, the Denny's example, you know, it's, it's a pretty compelling case. They feel a little bit different uh, on the different platforms and they feel different uh, on television. Uh, and I don't know if I could sit here today and tell you that I agree 100%. And that's okay because there's a part of me that says, well, can't we be the brand who we are, just be relevant on these different platforms? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I think I think there probably is something. And it's about, you know, where how many layers deep is that? And is that is that style guide layer deep or is that more like at your heart? Mm-hmm. You know, your heart is the same. Your essence is the same. Your soul is the same of the brand, right? But how you express it might be different depending on the platform. Yeah, and I and by the way, I just think in my own experience, I, I am slightly different on LinkedIn than I am on Twitter. Right. So, you know, you, I think you really may be onto something. I hope so. <laughs> the, the other thing I, I, I want you to talk about, too, is, is, is the leak paradox TM. Because <laughs> uh, I think this is, this is a very profound uh, observation that you have. So uh, you won't have the benefit of visuals. Yeah, you're going to have to describe the, the chart. Land, uh, um, of the audio, but please share with the audience the leak paradox. I'll have to. I'll have to like tweet this out and see if it does. It, it, it of, of, you know, when you scan social media to see how how did how did my talk go? This was the slide that most people had shared. So I oh, was, interesting. I was, and I had the foresight to name it after myself, but. <laughs> Um, if you can imagine a chart, and the chart basically looks like uh, in, an upside-down bell curve, a U-shaped bell curve, right? That it's really high on the left and it's really high on the right, and in the middle it sags. And you're charting against uh, two axes. One is effectiveness and one is quality. And this was something that I actually put together uh, when I was working at Saatchi, New York, uh, as a creative director. And I, I always noticed, and, and at, back then it was my argument for doing great work. Like, I'm sure you've experienced this, and I'm sure everybody listening has experienced this. Oftentimes, you've got a great idea, and it needs to be fantastic, and it would just do an awesome job. And then it gets pecked to death a little bit, and it comes out still trying to be a little bit creative, but 
watered down and it just ends up sort of in the middle. And I always felt like that was like a worse place to do than if you just made it bad. Because if, if it was just bad, then it would be like I've fallen and I can't get up. And, and, and mm-hmm. those kinds of like, you know, the, the screaming um, infomercial guy. And so back then when I said bad, I literally meant bad. I meant the idea was bad. The craftsmanship was bad. And it was just, it was almost like that so bad it's good kind of thing, but it really actually wasn't good. It was just bad. And and then I reframed it because actually I think in today's world, the same thing is true, except now there's a creative opportunity on both sides. There's a creative opportunity in the bad, in the ugly, to be ugly and to stand out but actually still be good and really effective. And there's still a great opportunity to be awesome and well-polished and well-produced and, and a beautiful piece of creative amazingness and still be really effective. And I still believe it's that stuff in the middle. It either isn't willing to commit to the ugliness or it's not willing to commit to being a great, beautiful idea. It's just kind of dumbed down and watered down in the middle. And there's just too much content in the world today for that to matter. And and ultimately, that's that's our job is to create stuff that matters. And and how do we do that? Well, I, what what I also liked about the theory, uh, you know, just uh, in the realm of narcissism, is that it, it always, you know, I always had this uh, theorem, uh, <laughs> which was there was only two kinds of advertising that works: the genius <laughs> or the heinous. That's yeah, it. It's the so same it's, thing, right? Exactly. So it's either 1984 or it's Crazy Eddie. That's it. Yes. Everything yeah. in the middle is wallpaper. Yeah, so. that's that's exactly. We, we had the sa- same observation. I just turned into a chart and named you. It after you myself. did a chart, and I did the genius or the heinous. All right. So, so the last piece, the last piece before we go into your, your journey is, I, I call this the ugly underbelly of ugly, <laughs> and the ugly underbelly of ugly is something uh, that you talk about in your presentation, which is that ugly is really effective. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe you can just. I don't know, either delight us or depress us with the fact that ugly is effective. Well, I, I try to look at everything as um, as an opportunity, right? Um, and, and right now we have a hard time separating ugly from bad. And that's a big part of the, that's a big part of what I'm, what my presentation was about is, that, is mm. I think we can embrace ugly and it's actually a creative opportunity. It can actually be good and smart. It's just not well produced, deliberately. So, by the way, that that the Gucci stuff that you share, right? You know, by the way, Ugly's being done by you know one of the top three luxury brands in the world, right? The Gucci work I thought was actually conceptual and very smart, just ugly. Yeah, it, and it was a deliberate choice, and it, it it grabs your attention for that same reason. But the and and one of the reasons that I pointed out in terms of why why is ugly, especially in the internet, which is kind of where it has first bubbled up. Why why is it so predominant? And and one of the the my observations is that ugly in general tests annoyingly well. So it just does. And 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 certainly we've seen that left and right. A, a lot of times when you if you're going to straight up split test something, and you have an ugly version and then you have a slick version, the ugly one outperforms, and everybody's immensely frustrated by that. And it is frustrating. And I think, you know. Any any sort of test like that is missing a lot of other things, right? There's there's if you're going to do a test like that, you're measuring a click, right? You're you're measuring some sort of conversion. You're not measuring what it means to the brand. You're not measuring a lot of other stuff that goes into it. So it it's not. 
I, I can take issue and, and make an argument on, on either side. But the fact of the matter is, is that in general, ugly things do test well. And now you could also say that that's happening because so much stuff isn't ugly that it stands out. It feels different, right? And mm. that's one way to stand out. If all of a sudden everything feels like that, would that still happen? I have a hypothesis that probably it wouldn't. But I, I like to reframe that. Instead of getting depressed by it, how can we turn that into an opportunity? Because we have all these different things we have to deal with right now. Clients want us to do things faster, cheaper, and better and more effective. That's that's mm-hmm. still, at the end of the day, what we are going to be tasked with, no matter how much we hate the truth of that. That's the truth of that. We have to do more stuff, and we don't have the budget to just make it all amazing as, as what we put on the Super Bowl. So we have to pick and choose what stuff is going to get that approach and what stuff is going to get a different kind of approach. And if we can embrace the fact that this stuff will perform, how can we then make it great? You know, how can we make it appropriate and how can we make it something that 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 people look at and, and it resonates with them? And they say, oh, God, that was awesome. And and, you know, I share in the, in the presentation as well. There's this fantastic I'm going to call it a spot for Old Spice. And it was a video that they put, but then they put paid media behind it. And, and obviously, Wyden Kennedy was involved in this somehow. I didn't I don't know the whole story behind it. I, I am, am, am a creative kind of a researcher in that <laughs> I, I go out and I find stuff and you look at it and I have to guess what the backstory is. I'm, I'm not a reporter and didn't didn't call them up to find out but it's this great piece of content that was that was done by a guy named Chaz Smith and it is hilarious and you know the I, I've always said, like, when we're putting a spot together, man, any spot that can make you laugh like four or five times, that's a pretty genius spot. And I laugh in, I laugh out loud probably in at least 10 different places over the course of this video. And he's got about eight product benefit mentions woven into how he's done it. And it looks like a guy's shot it on his iPhone and then edited it, but it's hilarious. And then look at the comments of what people are saying about that and the reaction it gets and people saying, I, I, I'd be okay if this was the future of advertising. I watched this 10 times. <laughs> I, I wish we were creating ads that had that kind of reaction. And I haven't seen anybody do this yet, but I bet it's only a matter of time before we basically see that kind of an ad with a TV media buy behind it. Because imagine in the Super Bowl that you saw that as a 60-second ad, I think it would stop us. I think it would be one of the best-liked ads in the Super Bowl. And it's just going to take somebody being brave enough to decide to actually run that to prove it. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, you've hit on it. And I think I think Wendy's has started. I think uh, you know they've taken uh, all the snark that's going on in their social media, and they have turned it into TV advertising. I'm not sure it's as six, I'm not sure their television advertising's as successful as their uh, social media, yeah, but it's starting to happen. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We'll have baby steps, right? Yeah, and and it, by the way, another you know, I think the um, uh, the old spice uh, Instagram page is is really uh, genius. It, it's it is hilarious. And uh, another one I would throw out there is you have to see Slim Jim. Oh yeah, uh, another uh, another genius uh, use of of Instagram. Oh, that's great. Now, so you've got this very interesting theory. You've got this new fancy <laughs> title of uh, of chief marketing innovation officer. How did you get there? Tell us a little bit about your journey. So yeah, I um as, as you know, I I came came up on the creative side of this industry. So I, I uh, got my start at Shite Day in L.A. I was a copywriter. Um, I was actually the creative assistant first, and actually even an account group assistant before that. And and it was, you know, the agency I wanted to work for coming out of college. I spent spent five years uh, there and and became a copywriter. Uh, 
got to work in some great campaigns, great people, learned learned a ton. Did that for a long time, uh, made my way to New York. You and I just keep crisscrossing the country. We're, we're in the wrong we, we always flip sides of, of the coast about the same time. I think you moved to New York about when I moved back. But but I was in New York for 10 years, and I, I was, um, for seven of them, uh, I was working at Saatchi & Saatchi in New York, and I was a creative director. Working on a number of different things, but a, a, a big part of what I worked on was was Toyota, working with the dealer associations, which is a, a place where you have to get really smart and, and scrappy because we don't have the budgets that other people do. I thought we did a lot of really great work. I learned a lot of great skills. Um, but... You, you know, if if I'm being honest, long term, I wasn't I, I wasn't getting the opportunities to do you know the kind of award winning work that I, that was really going to propel my my career to where I where I felt like I could be where I wanted to be. Uh, about that same time, I, re- I remember you and I both were were in the very first uh, Hyper Island Masterclass for Executives. Oh, is yes. what they called it. It was it was the very first class. That that Hyper Island, which uh, for those listening who don't know it, is a a Swedish digital school. They they created an executive program to help, basically help us figure out what digital was and and how to get ahead of it and and how to go from zero to awesome in digital. And and I think uh, a lot of us who were in that in that class had had our minds appropriately blown, and we we're like, ah, now I get it. I see the future. I know where this is going. I then started to pivot. I, I, I took on an internal innovation role within within Saatchi as well, going, I've got to do this. I, I, by the way, was not asked to do that. I say I took it on, meaning I just did it. And I, I do that a lot where I feel like there's a need for this to be there. And so I start doing it. Um, and it's great. And and that was an exciting thing. And, and uh, you know, met a lot of other really smart people that we were all out to change the world at that same time. And then I, I got invited to go back and, and speak in these Hyper Island classes about what I was doing, implementing it, and, and the change we were making. That led to other opportunities as as Hyper Island grew in popularity, and, and pretty soon a lot of different brands and, and agencies were going to it. Uh, I had then had an opportunity to join that organization full time, and that was a a disruption, oh, right. a giant jump yeah. off the escalator of a creative career, oh, right? Yeah, to I go, forgot, I forgot that you were actually working at Hyper Island. Yeah, I, I did that for a couple years, and so at this point, I've, I've worked with that organization for ten years. Most of that time was was freelance, but for a few years, full time. And so, as I worked full time for them, my my role was then basically. Uh, I always called it a consultant, like like working as an innovation consultant, because that's the best way to wrap my arms around the different stuff you did. But there's an element of business development. You have to go get your clients, your consultant. You have to get clients. Uh, you have to explain what we do and the benefit we're going to do. I would speak in the classes, and I would help design and, and implement them. Uh, we had started working with a lot of big brands at that time, and I, I, I had big... You know, my two biggest clients that I worked regularly with was General Mills and uh, Target. I've heard of who them. Who are both based based in Minneapolis. Yeah, they're, they've they've done a thing or two, um, and great great people to work with. I I really enjoyed that. Worked with a lot of agencies as well, and. Then, then I had this this opportunity. One of my clients during that time was RPA, and I, so I got to know the leadership team there. They're great people. Um, having come up in the LA ad market, I of course was super well aware of them and their reputation. I had uh, some good friends that had gone over there. Uh, they then reached out about this this um, possible opportunity that that maybe combined several of the different skills that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, from from as I was a creative director to what I was doing with Hyper Island and um, to help them grow because they had never put a big focus on growing the agency both uh, you know 
from like it's not that they, they didn't do pitches of course they, they did a lot of pitches but they didn't ever have a person whose job that was and most agencies do is is to lead the growth of the agency and they didn't have a person whose job it was to be just thinking about the future of course everybody does all this but it wasn't well, most people at right. the agency are panicking about the future. You are actually thinking about the future. Yeah, and th- there is a difference of that, right? And and you know, as with any leadership role, what I hope is is uh, I you both are responsible for everything and can take credit for nothing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's a lot of other people that do a lot of great thinking, and I, I hope I can contribute to that and be be a, be the right spark and the change agent in the right way. And so, so that's that's what I come in. And so, my my purview is how do we help tell our story in a really clear, coherent way, and 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 crafting that. Uh, how do we craft our new business pitches? How do we develop our relationships out there with different people? How do I do obviously a lot of thought leadership, and and I put it all around the phrasing that we said at, at, at the beginning of the show about, uh, you know, the way I look at it is I want to help us become what our clients need us to be before our clients know that's what they need. And and as soon as I kind of, that had locked into place for me, I got what I needed to do. And it's not, because I'll be honest, it's, it's not easy as a uh, creative person. I Sometimes I want to say former creative person. I think you're always a creative person. I no, I no longer have a capital uh, C creative in my title. And there there can be a lot of, that's not an easy thing sort of for your identity. You go, oh, well, that, but I can, do, I can do that and I can do that. And there's lots of things I can do. It takes a while, I think, to get used to the fact that um, meant to inspire other people and, 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 and help be a leader and not do it all myself. It's probably taken me a good five years to learn that. Well, by the way, you, you, if, I've, if I've properly learned it yet. You should feel proud that uh, your presentation and, uh, again, your ad about ugly cells was one of the most powerful things I saw at, at Cannes this summer. Thank you very much. It's, it's really, it really is an amazing thing to hear from somebody like you, so thank you. Oh, pshaw. <laughs> all right, so very good. I think, I think uh, the disruptions of your career are also very interesting and something that people can learn from, and I think, yes, uh, I would, that uh, Hyper Island Masterclass really, that, that, that kind of changed my career in a lot of ways. Really it, right? It was, it was an amazing experience because, you know, the shorthand, which you have to go through the experience of it, I think, but I always said it kind of unlocks your brain to be permanently curious and okay with change and that's not something that is our default setting yeah no i I think that's very true so we are at the point in the show where you have to give us one piece of advice so we've got some you know rising stars in the business listening we've got some (laughs) cmos uh we're downloaded in over ninety countries. FYI, awesome for you kids. Well, at so home. this will be the, this will be this, the the best advice. The, the simplest thing that, that I had to give some good thought to this um, is is it's always about people, and it's always about um, understanding what's going to resonate with people. This whole idea of ugly cells came simply because I wanted to pay attention more to what people were, what was resonating with people than what we wanted to make. Hmm. And that's true whether you're an agency or it's true whether you're a brand. It's so easy to think about your brand and what you want to say and and what you want to talk about and what makes your brand different. And it is not about any of that. It's always about people. And it's about what's going to resonate with them, what matters to them, what do they care about. And when you put the focus in the right place, you're going to have success. Well, Tim, Mr. Tim Leake, uh, you're ugly is beautiful. So uh, thank you, Rob. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show. And those of you who want to see this presentation, I think you've got a, a brief window to go to lovethework.com, lovethework, L O V E T H E, 
W-O-R-K.com. That's uh, the Can Lion site, and uh, you can see Ugly Cells there. Yeah. But I, I don't know whether they let you sign up for a free, like do you get a three-week window of checking it out for free? If not, I you have to it, yeah, convince convince somebody to pay for the subscription. Yeah. But it lives there. It's uh, it, it, it's worth it. Until you listen, until you write your book, uh, that, that's the place to see it. What can I say? Awesome. Working on the book now. Though. <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you so much Thank for being on the show. Take care. It was, it was a pleasure. It was an honor. Thank you. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, brought to you by TBWA Shite Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiteday.ny.com. 